Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you here today, and I'm really excited about landing our January teaching series. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a whole bunch of themes that are connected very simply by these two letters, R-E or RE, and are ways that we've been encouraged and are challenged just in our faith. And today I want to look at another RE word, and it's a beautiful word, it's a complex word, it's a challenging word, and it's the word reconciliation. I want to talk about reconciliation, what it means for us, what it means uh, on behalf, in, in relation to our connection with God, but also our connection with one another. And we're going to jump straight into some of the scriptures this morning. And I want to look at some letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. If you are new to studying the scriptures or reading the Bible, uh, the guy that wrote a lot of the New Testament was a guy by the name of Paul. He had an encounter with the risen Jesus and uh, went on to be one of the great heroes of the early church, planted and pioneered a whole bunch of churches, and uh, then wrote a lot of letters. And we have them recorded in our Bible, these letters or these correspondence that Paul wrote to the church. And I want to just pick on two passages today that come from two of those letters. One was a letter that he wrote to a church in a place called Colossae, and one was a letter that he wrote to a church in a place called Corinth. And in both of those, he uses this word reconciliation. And I want to suggest this morning that reconciliation captures in every essence both the goal and the effect of the gospel or the story, the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. I don't think if there is a better word at the heart of the goal and the effect of the gospel than reconciliation. Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae, says this from chapter 1, verse 19. He said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He goes on to say, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, do not move from the hope held. Paul concludes this little section by saying, this is the gospel that you have heard that has been proclaimed. See, nothing quite captures the goal and the effect of the gospel than this idea of reconciliation. He writes to the church in Corinth these words. He says, all this, and when he says all this, he's talking about in the previous uh, build-up section about we are a new creation. What Christ has done for us has made us a new creation. The old has been taken off, the new has been put on. And he says, all of this, all of this good that we experience is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In these two passages, Paul picks up the richness 
of this concept of reconciliation. And through it, he gives us a bit of a glimpse of the pattern or the process of reconciliation. He starts at the very beginning by saying, for reconciliation to occur or even be required, there needs to be acknowledgement that relationship has been broken. You see, you don't need to reconcile with anybody unless there's been a break or a mess or a fracturing of a relationship. If you haven't seen someone for a long time, you don't reconcile with them, you reunite with them. But when you have a broken relationship and you come back together, that in itself is the process of reconciliation. But this isn't even needed unless relationship is broken. And Paul says from the very beginning, you were alienated from God, he says. Why were you alienated from God? Because, and he just sums it up in in a very simple statement, because of your evil behavior. The Bible in other places uses the word sin, but an acknowledgement that the perfect relationship that God had created between him, the creator, and us, his creation, has been fractured and broken. There's been something that's been driven in between it that's changed the nature of the relationship. So the ministry of reconciliation only exists because there's a break in the relationship in the first instance. And right now, all of us can probably think of situations and people where there's a fracturing or a breaking of the relationship, and it's only in no sense do we ever consider reconciliation. Paul goes on to say, not only is reconciliation required because relationship has been broken, he wants to say to us that reconciliation can only occur if forgiveness happens. And forgiveness and reconciliation are are similar in some senses, but they're very different. And forgiveness is part of the process of reconciliation. Forgiveness, the best definition I've ever heard for it, is surrendering the right to get even. It's stopping in that moment the cycle of revenge. And forgiveness comes about because when there's a break in a relationship, people get wounded. And the act of forgiveness is something that we choose. It's actually something that for those of us that are people of faith, that God commands or requires of us is to practice and act in forgiveness towards one another because that is mimicking what he has done on behalf of us. And Paul says reconciliation has to be grounded in forgiveness. This is how Paul puts it in regards to our relationship with God. He says this, Jesus came and did a work for us, not counting people's sins against them. Not counting people's sins against them. You see, if someone does something to you, the natural laws of justice suggest that you can go and do that back to them. But forgiveness actually stops the cycle of hurt, pain, and revenge. Sometimes it's not the person that perpetrated against us that we get revenge on, it's just everybody that comes across our path because we harbor a wound inside that has affected us and changed us. And hurting people are often the worst people at hurting others. We're all hurt hurters, in a sense. But Paul says the process of reconciliation requires forgiveness. And God showed us his forgiveness. He didn't count our sins against us. But he said this didn't happen easily because part of the process of of reconciliation is recognizing that it comes at a significant cost. You see, to forgive brings a great cost. And Paul outlines very clearly the cost for God to bring the ministry of reconciliation, to reconcile his relationship between him and you. He says this, 
Now he has reconciled you, how? By Christ's physical body through death. See, there was a cost for you to be reconciled to God. And that cost was Jesus gave his own life. And it was through his death that we can know reconciliation with God. But there's one final thing that Paul makes clear in this that is very important in understanding the process of reconciliation, and it's this. Reconciliation always requires two people to come to the party. You see, forgiveness is about surrendering the right to get even. Forgiveness is about releasing the desire for revenge against somebody that's perpetrated against us. We can do that without any involvement from the other person. But reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship. That cannot be done alone. It takes two for reconciliation to occur. And Paul says at the end of one of these little messages to the churches, he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. In other words, he says, let me just tell you about what Christ has done. He's given his own life. He's actually made reconciliation possible because he paid the cost through his own death. And through that death, he now no longer counts your sins against you. Reconciliation is possible because God has done everything that he can do. But there's a point now where the invitation is over to you to lean in because a relationship can never be reconciled unless both parties lean in. And the invitation is always, will we lean in? And will we be participants in reconciliation? The challenge of reconciliation is always that it takes two. Because some of us seek reconciliation and don't find it because maybe we've perpetrated against somebody else and the damage that we've done is so deep that they as of yet cannot find it to want to see restoration in that relationship. There's a little verse in Romans that I just love and I hold on to. Paul writes and he says this, Romans 12 verse 18. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. You see, we might think we just give up on reconciliation because not everybody's in, but there's still a call on us to do what we can, to play our part as far as it depends on you. And Paul, in writing about reconciliation, often uses this concept of peace in the same breath. He says, you know, you've been found peace with God through the reconciling work of Christ. And peace is the fruit of reconciliation. When a relationship is reconciled, peace is the fruit of that relationship. When you are reconciled to God, you find peace with God. Something changes. And so Paul writes, in this little verse in Romans, he says, okay, we've all got a job to play, and it's this. As if, if it is possible, and as far as it depends on you, in other words, don't worry about what everyone else does. You just do the thing that you're being called to do. And I want to recognize today that sometimes reconciliation is incredibly difficult, and I wouldn't in any way want to suggest that in the brokenness of the world we live in, that anyone here should ever choose to pursue reconciliation if the person that we're dealing with has abused their power against us or is in a position where they can perpetrate against us in the same way. You know, it always takes two and it always takes two people to lean in. It always takes two people to change for that restoration to occur. 
But Paul, in writing these passages to the church in Corinth and the church in Colossae, wants to talk about this beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us in actually reconciling not just us, but all things to God. You see, God is in the business of bringing everything back to his original intent for all mankind. And if you go back to the very beginning of Scripture, when God breathed life into us and life into this beautiful world that we inhabit, everything lived in peace and in harmony. And it wasn't until sin entered the picture that the relationship was fractured. But Jesus has come to actually pull all that back together, to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to himself through Christ. But that's not the end of the message because Paul then goes on, as we've already read, to say this isn't just about what God has done for you and on behalf of you and what he's doing and outworking on planet earth. There's actually an invitation for you in this. Paul says, Christ has done the work of reconciliation. He's done everything that he can do to invite people to have that relationship with their creator restored. And he says, and now those of you that have put your faith in Jesus, there's a few things for you. You now carry the message of reconciliation. You now carry the ministry of reconciliation and you're ambassadors for Christ. In other words, we as God's people carry the ministry and the message of reconciliation out into our families, our workplaces, our communities, our universities, wherever it is that we are, we take this message because when reconciliation occurs, we get a picture of the transformative work of the gospel because nothing sums up the goal and the effect of the gospel better than this idea of reconciliation. But reconciliation's never easy. There's a great story in the scriptures that comes in a little book later in the New Testament, which also is a letter that Paul wrote. This time he writes it to a guy by the name of Philemon. Now, maybe you've never, if you are a regular reader of the scriptures, maybe you've flicked past Philemon numerous times because it's one page in my Bible, one page, one chapter. If you've already given up on, you know, reading the scriptures regularly and you've been discouraged this year, go and read Philemon today because it'll take you about three and a half minutes and by the end of it, you'll be able to say, I read an entire book of the Bible today, look at me go. Right, and we're going to read it together in church, but I just want to tell you, go home, make a coffee. You'll be done by the time you drink your coffee and you'll be back on track with your discipline of reading the word this year. But Philemon's this little letter that Paul writes to this guy by the name of Philemon and to the people in his household. And if you would like to follow along with me, uh, Philemon's found in the Bible just before the book of Hebrews, which is a bit longer and more significant. So if you're flicking through, you hit Hebrews just rewind a little bit and you'll find this one page, one chapter book called Philemon. Now Philemon's a guy who we find out very, very early has an intimate relationship with Paul. Paul, in essence, is Philemon's spiritual father. Philemon, we get a sense, is a man of some wealth, influence, and means. And we know that because the story as it unfolds tells us that Philemon has slaves in his house. Now, we, we, slavery is abhorrent. So often when we read that in the scriptures, we get caught in that moment. But I want to encourage you, just stick with me for a while because the picture at the end of the story is incredible. But this was very cultural. Philemon was just living a normal, affluent life in the culture of his day. And people that had means had people that worked in their household as slaves. And so we know that Philemon has some means because Paul speaks to him about one of his slaves. 
But Paul starts the letter with great affection to Philemon. If you want to follow along from verse 4, he says this, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear, hear about your love for all his people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. For your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, listen to the family language, you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Let me translate that for you. Philemon, you're a good fella. You're a top bloke. You're working hard. People like you. You're making a difference. You go for it, bud. This is how I'd write the letter. Probably not that long. It takes me too long to type stuff. Philemon, you're a top bloke, full stop. That's essentially what Paul's saying. But he also acknowledges the relationship. He says, you know, we're brothers. And we, we see that Philemon has come to faith through the ministry of Paul. And so Paul is like a spiritual parent. There is a family connection with Philemon. And so Paul writes this letter to him and praises him, tells him how good he is. But now it feels like there's an ulterior motive. You know when someone comes and you haven't seen them for a long time, they're like, oh, mate, you're a, you, Andrew, you preached so good this morning. That check shirt, that looks fantastic on you. The beard, who likes the beard? You know, I'm just putting my application in for Gateway Bush Campus 2020 and I'm just working on, you know, the very lumberjack look. But, mate, you look fantastic this morning. Have you lost weight? You look like you've lost weight on camera. Like, if you tell me that this morning, I'll give you a hug and we'll be happy. And then you go, but, like, I'm waiting for that. Okay, you've been buttering me up now. What do you want to say? And it feels like a little bit of what Paul's doing. If I lean in, you're a top bloke. Then he goes on to say this, therefore, therefore, Philemon, now I've said all the good things about you, and it's not that Paul's not being genuine. He's just saying, Philemon, I'm telling you how good you are. I'm telling you what a great job you're doing, but I want to address something with you. He says, therefore, Philemon, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. In other words, I'm about to ask you something. I'm about to tell you something. And it's something that I really sh could and should say to you that the onus is upon you to do this. That there's, there's a compulsion for you to follow through on what I'm about to tell you. But Philemon, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to invite you into the process of deciding how you're going to address this issue. He says, I could tell you, but I'm not going to. He says, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. And then he gets relational again. He says, none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus that I appeal to you. Listen to this. For my son, Onesimus. Now, we probably have never heard of Onesimus before, and we hear his name, and it doesn't spark anything inside of us. But when Paul wrote that name in this letter, and Philemon opened that letter, and he read it, the minute he heard the word Onesimus spoken, it just built something inside of him. As we study this letter and the context of it, and we read between the lines and hear what Paul had to say, we get the picture that Onesimus was a slave in Philemon's household. And Onesimus has done the runner on Philemon. More than that, we get a little bit of a sense that it wasn't a clean break. That is, on his way out the door, he filled his pockets with some of the kitty from Philemon's wallet and maybe some food and just took off. But we get a sense that Onesimus didn't just run away from Philemon, but Onesimus did it and took some stuff with him. And so when Paul says, I want to talk to you now, Philemon, about Onesimus, there would... I imagine just the natural bent, the natural human reaction would be him. That fella, he ran away from me, he ripped me off. And you have to understand the severity of what Onesimus 
has done. We wouldn't understand the context of this, but for a slave to steal from and run away from the person whose household they were a part of was a crime that in some cultures of that day was punishable by death. It was a capital crime what Onesimus has done. But Paul says, Philemon, my son, my brother, you're doing a great job. And now I want to invite you to do something, and it's to do with someone that you know, Onesimus. But when he tells him about Onesimus, listen to what Paul says. I want to talk to you about my son, Onesimus. You see, something's happened that Onesimus is now regarded as part of Paul's family too. You see, Onesimus has done the runner from Philemon. He's ripped him off. He's taken some stuff. He's run a couple of hundred miles away to where Paul's in prison. And through the ministry of Paul, Onesimus has now had an encounter with Jesus and come to faith in Christ too. And Philemon's like, oh, I see how this works. Runs away to a tent crusade with you, Paul, gives his life to Jesus, and now I'm expected to change everything in my attitude towards him. And Paul says, yeah, he has had an encounter with me. And this is what he says. This is what he asks of Philemon. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. Little aside, the name Onesimus actually means useful. And so Paul says, Onesimus, who's meant to be useful, was useless to you, Philemon, but now the useless one has run away and had an encounter with Jesus, and now is living up to his name. He's become useful both to you and to me. And so Paul says, I am sending him who's my very heart back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. In other words, I'd love to keep him here with me. He's doing a good job, but I know the right thing to do right now is to send him back to you. And Philemon, it's up to you what you do with him in this moment. Paul says this, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him back as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand and I will pay it back. That's a lovely story, isn't it? But think of the implication for Philemon. Onesimus, the thieving runaway slave, has now had an encounter with Jesus. And Paul says, Philemon, remember the story we now live. Remember the difference that Jesus makes. This is what I want you to do. Or this is what I'm inviting you to do. I'm sending Onesimus back and what you do, it's up to you. But I want to encourage you when he comes back, you don't welcome him back just as a slave. You don't just reinstate him to the position he was. I mean, that'd be a a fair thing anyway, wouldn't it? Like to say, okay, Onesimus, I'm going to forgive the wrong that you've committed against me. I'm actually going to just reinstate you and we won't talk about this again, but you just get on and work harder and you do your job and you put your head down and you do what's required of you. No, no, Paul doesn't just say reinstate him to where he was. Paul says, I want to ask Philemon whether you might welcome him back no longer as a slave, but as someone free, a brother in the Lord, someone who's now part of your family, Philemon. And on every level, this is crazy. 
imagine every other slave in Philemon's house thinking, you're telling me the guy that did the runner, flogged from the family kitty, went off and had a Jesus moment, now gets welcomed back, freed from the bond of slavery and welcomed with his family. That doesn't make sense. And the gospel of reconciliation doesn't always make sense. Now this story reminds me of a story that Jesus told. A really famous parable of Jesus. We know it often as the story of the lost son or the story of the prodigal son. And Jesus is telling it to a bunch of Pharisees that are whinging about the way he's showing love to all the thieving, runaway, dissident sinners that he was hanging around. And Jesus tells this story. He says there was a son who was part of the family, loved, accepted, connected, part of the family, but decided that he wanted to go and do his own thing. So he said to his dad, Dad, I want out of the family. Give me my inheritance. Pay me early. You're not dead yet but I want you to pay me what you owe me as though you were dead. Like I can't hurry the process up myself, so I might as well just tell you, I wish you weren't here. Can you give me what you owe me? And the story says that the father gave his son his inheritance and the son took off from the father's house, went and lived the life that he wanted, did everything, spent all the money, drank, got with women when he wanted to, did whatever he wanted to do, lived the life that he so desired, the life that he tried to run away with from his father, but got to a point where he realized the life he was living was no life at all. And his heart started to think about what life was like when he was back home. And he started to think about what he'd done to his dad. And he started to think about how good it was in his dad's household. And he started to regret the decisions that he'd made. And he started to think, well, Life was fantastic when I was back home with dad, but life was even fantastic if, if you were just one of the hired hands in my father's house. I've done so much wrong against my dad. There's no way that he would ever reinstate me to the place that I've come from. But maybe if I word it right and maybe if I grovel enough, he might give me a chance just to hang on the periphery of the family. Just be one of the hired hands, one of the slaves in his household. And it says the young son decided to go back home and have this conversation with his dad and he walks back towards the father's house. You know, I could imagine he's talking over in his head all the excuses, all the apologies, all the groveling, all the things he's going to do to make up for it. And Jesus says that when his father saw him, he ran. He ran to greet his son. He ran to embrace his son. He ran to kiss his son. He ran to bring his son back home. And when his son got back home, he said, no, 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 you do not live on the periphery of my presence. I welcome you back into my very family. See, this is what Jesus does. He does everything for us to do everything to take away from the mess that we've created. He's like the loving father that watches the kids run away and do their own thing and make all the mess that they possibly can. But when we come back, he says, I've done through my physical death on the cross. I've paid the cost. I will not count your sins against you any longer. All I need you to do is lean in. Because if we're to be reconciled, there's only so much I can do. 
before you need to walk and accept the invitation. And in that moment, the son's welcomed back into family. And that's exactly what God does for you. And that's exactly what God is inviting you into. He wants to reconcile his relationship with you. And he's done everything that he can. And now it's on to you as to how you're going to respond to him in that moment. And so Paul says, Philemon, I want you to do this because this is the model of what Christ has done for you. And I would say, church, those of you here this morning that are believers, that are followers of Christ, that are trying to work out what this looks like, we are called to carry the message of reconciliation, to enact the ministry of reconciliation, and through our ambassadorship to draw people to Jesus, to be reconciled with their Creator. That's what He's called us to do. But this morning as we finish, I want to start in this moment and invite anybody here today that has never taken that step to be reconciled to God, that today could be your moment. He's done it all for you. And now the invitation is just for you to lean in. He's given His life as payment for your sin. He will no longer hold your sin against you. And now He waits And he says, I'm here and I'm ready. Will you come and join me? And will we go back to the way this is always intended to be? I would like to invite you across this place today. If you're a believer, why don't you close your eyes and start praying. Pray that the grace of God would just fall on this place. Pray that the love of God would be felt tangibly across this place. And if you're here today and you've never taken the step of putting your faith in Jesus, can I just talk to you for a moment? God loves you so much that He has done everything He can to get right to the place where all is left is for you to say, Jesus, I accept what you've done. I'm in. I choose to trust you and follow you and dedicate my life to your purposes. And right now, while every head is bowed and eyes closed, I'd like to invite you for the very first time to take that step. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything really public in front of everyone, but I would like right in this moment, if you would like me to pray with you and just lead you through a prayer that is you acknowledging to God, I want in. Let's, let's make things right, God. I'm ready. I'm ready to, be, to feel and to be part of your family. And if you would like me to uh, to just pray that prayer with you, to give you some words to echo so that you can speak to God about that right now across this place, I want to ask if you would just raise your hand just so I can see it, just so we can pray together. And you can say, God, today is my day. I choose to be reconciled with you. I choose to make the relationship that's been fractured between us right again. Thank you for all you've done. I'm in. If you'd like to pray that prayer with me today, right across this auditorium, can I just ask you that you just raise your hand enough just so I can see it and acknowledge it so we can pray with you. Thank you. Thank you for that hand. Are there others that would like to join this morning? The fruit of reconciliation is peace. The fruit of reconciliation with God is peace with God. And maybe there's an unsettledness in your spirit and you've never understood that God's not looking for you to earn His favour. God's not looking for you to work harder. He's actually walked right up to the line and said, I've done everything. This is a free gift of my grace. Would you just accept the gift? Anyone else like to join in that prayer this morning? Just raise your hand so I can see it. 
Awesome church, why don't we all pray together? Jesus, I thank you for all that you have done for me. I thank you that you have given your life out of love for me. Thank you for your grace. God, I confess that I've, I've been part of breaking the relationship with you. And I wanna say I'm sorry. But Jesus, today I choose to say yes. I wanna serve you, I wanna follow you, I wanna have peace with you. Thank you that you have reconciled me to yourself. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's put our hands together, church. Come on, that's a good day.